this episode, we speak with Judge Darlene Byrne. She's the district judge of the 126th Judicial District of Travis County and has served as the president of the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges. She spoke to us about reforming family court systems, data-driven policy making, the implications of a legal system that elects its judges, and the challenges of practicing as a family court judge in a state as big as Texas. We'd like to start out with just um, talking about what the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges does, Mm -hmm. um, their purpose, your involvement, and uh, how you got involved. Um, When I realized how I got involved is um, back in 2003, I was presiding over one of my first termination of parental rights cases. Prior to that, I was primarily a fight over money judge. It's what I did as a lawyer. It's what I was doing as a judge primarily. But it was a private termination of parental rights case. And as I went through that case, it was very highly publicized, lots of press, that type of thing. Um, I realized the significantly important decisions that are being made for children in our community and child welfare courts. Where are they going to sleep tonight safely? Number one issue. That's massive. Um, And the impact of changing lives, actually forever severing a legal tie to a child. Pretty Mm -hmm. significant decision. On the civil side of things, I consider it the capital murder case over here um, because it's got such a lifetime impact. For children and families. And so I realized that our dockets here uh, did not have enough bandwidth. We didn't have enough judges focused on that work. And I was at a point in my career where um, I'm intellectually curious and I also had a heart for this. I have three children of my own and I sought out a mentor judge of mine who was doing this work. And I said, you know, if you need help, I would love to learn this area of the law and try to be of some help. And um, after grilling me about my motives after about an hour, Mm -hmm. um, uh, she finally was convinced that my motives were pure, that I really wanted to, one, learn how to do this work, learn how to do it well, and then do the work. Um, I went to my fellow judges about who's the best trainer of judges in the nation in this area of the law, because this is not what I learned in law school. This is not what I've been practicing law doing. And it was the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges that came to light um, uh, through my fellow judge, Michael Denton. So um, I went to one of my first trainings in Chicago. It was primarily on the issue of domestic violence, and it was some of the best training I'd ever been to ever, Mm -hmm. bar any, law school classes, anything. Um, And so I realized they know their stuff. Uh, The National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges has been around 80-plus years. 
It's one of the oldest judge organizations in the country. It it does that thing where we teach judges how to run courts that impact children and families in the area of child welfare, juvenile justice, and, and uh, uh, domestic violence all across the country and, and honestly across the globe. We do a lot of training. We have PhDs on, on staff. Uh, we're oftentimes like a think tank in, in many respects. So it's an education arm, a think tank. Uh, we do policy development at a local and national level. We deploy, we are a model court in the National Council's circle. They got some federal funds to develop these courts all across the country that were willing to do innovative things to improve outcomes for children and family that go through these courts. But the courts had to be committed to be classrooms for systems change. We had to be committed to being data-driven. We had to be committed to share what we had learned, good, bad, and ugly, uh, publish on it, teach on it at a national level. We mentor other courts around the nation. So now there are about a hundred plus model courts around the nation. Uh, there are three here in Texas. At one point we were the only one, but now the Alabama uh Cushata Tribal Nation, they're a model tribal court. And then down in the valley, we have a model court down in the Brownsville area. And so, as a matter of fact, I got reached out to uh, from uh, a court in um, Michigan today wanting me to mentor them Mm -hmm. on how to get kids to come to court. And Mm -hmm. so we're going to do some uh, video and web-based mentoring with a team from Michigan about what we do here. So that's what we do, and we've been doing that forever. Um, I felt so uh, impressed with the quality of the work that they do that I uh, sought a position on the board of directors for the organization. And so for nine years, I was on the board of directors. Um, in various roles. Eventually, several years ago, I was the president. Um, I am no longer on the board now. I turned out um, and uh, did my immediate past president work just one year ago. I still do committee work for them. Uh, I do development work for them in the way of developing board members uh, around the nation, as well as um, foundation in, in financial funding in the private sector. So I do that kind of work. Um, I will be going to Capitol Hill at the end of this month to do advocacy work. Uh, we'll, we'll deploy probably 15 judges from around the country to go to Capitol Hill to talk about issues involving children and families that are impacted by federal law. What are some of the concrete changes that you can say, you know, this is definitely different now that we've started instituting the sorts of things that uh, NCJ, FCJ is pushing, whether it's like standards or practice in the model courts, um, that really has changed the outcomes for uh, juveniles and families? Well, it, it teaches judges how to do what we are allowed to do, which is to convene people and be a leader for systems change. It teaches us how to, in essence, 
from my perspective, I run my court like a business. Uh, I have an executive committee that I meet with every month. That executive committee is made up of lawyers for children, lawyers for parents, uh, CASAs, lawyers for the department, and the department, and the court. And we don't talk about cases. We talk about systems improvement. So on any given day, I've got 1,500 kids under my watch on the child welfare docket. In any given year, I'm serving about 2,500 kids, somewhere around 900 families. That's a lot of court work, and it's not, and I know that I can't do it alone. I've got to have good quality caseworkers out there doing what they need to do for the children and families. I've got to have really good lawyers that know a lot of stuff about child development, about domestic violence, about brain development, neuroscience, evidence-based uh, programs and therapies. You don't learn that in law school. And so we as an executive committee work together to bring that type of education to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We also have three databases now that work with each other that show us you know, our, our court trends, uh, how many children uh, that are African-American are we serving? How many Hispanic are we serving? How many girls, boys, what are their ages? Where are, their, where are they placed? Are, we, are they with relatives? Are they with parents? So we look at that in the aggregate to see whether when we deploy a new method of working in the courtroom and working with these children and families, whether we can improve the outcomes for kids in that category, that we feel like maybe we're failing in some way. So we as an executive body um, come together and decide what we have as a collaborative body in the way of bandwidth to change something. And we'll tweak the way we do things and see whether that can improve outcomes for children and families. Um, we also, one time every four months, and we'll be doing this next Tuesday at the Carver Library, we also realize that what we do in the courtroom is just the tip of the iceberg. There's, there's domestic violence providers out in the community, there's education, there's the Sheriff's Department, there's um, uh, City Hall, there are housing providers. So we have what we call a collaborative council of all of these system players helping in home, settlement home, that touch the lives of our children and families. And we do one network, a networking meeting. We uh, do an education meeting where we teach them a new area that maybe we don't all collectively know uh, or know about a certain resource. Um, and it makes our work so much easier. Um, I had a young man that's 18 now. We, we, we change law. I mean, based on what we do right here in this court, we leverage what we do and we teach it statewide and then we try to turn it into legislation. Mm -hmm. And so many of the projects that we've done here has turned into legislation. One of them was uh, what we what I just had the privilege of doing in a hearing uh, just an hour ago where... Um, we recognize that most 18-year-olds are not ready to even get out of high school. 
much less be kicked on the curb. You no longer have a foster home. You, you we're done with you. Uh, we saw that as a problem, and so um, now almost a decade ago, we were able to get extended foster care services to care for kids as long as they're going to college or in a full-time job and in a licensed placement, we can care for them, and I still do service reviews for them. Well, I just had a young gentleman, uh, 18, and he has to volunteer to allow us to be in his life because the state's no longer his guardian. Uh, but we provide for his housing. Uh, he's testifying up at Capitol Hill. He's got some immigration issues. He's getting his GED. We're working on trying to get him, how to get him into college. And unlike a kid that's got a family, uh, when they lock up the dorms during spring break or over the Christmas holidays, where's my kid going to sleep? So we've done a a statewide education forum for um, colleges to assist our uh, foster youth um, in housing and making different rules for them than they would ordinarily have for their student body. So we do that type mm -hmm. of thing. So, uh, you know, almost any topic area you could imagine that affects a child's life, raising a child, we've touched it one way or the other. So how many judges would you say, uh, since, since the time you, you started as judge, uh, have begun to adopt this type of uh, collective approach to, to solving systemic problems? You know, I think, uh, I think there are a lot of judges that have the desire. A lot of them don't have the bandwidth or the political they don't think they have the political clout to do it. Uh, for example, um, in Texas, we have really some very good CPS judges, child welfare judges, uh, across the state. Amazingly good. But think about the way our state is made. It's 254 counties. Many of those counties have got more cows than they have little kids. Mm -hmm. And 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 they're few and far between between services and so how do you as a judge that need to understand the child welfare system how do you preside over that so what we built in this state was uh, an arm of the supreme court uh, through the office of court administration where we hire specialty judges associate judges to run the circuit in these rural counties. So one judge may run a five-county circuit. So one, they're on the road all the time, driving thousands and thousands of miles to get from courthouse to courthouse to courthouse to do this work. They have almost no support staff. They have a computer, a laptop that's got a recorder and that's how they do their business. Now, the one thing that they do incredibly well is they're very well-versed in child welfare and in the system, and they do it incredibly well. But in order to run a collaborative, you've got to be in a community, and you've got to constantly 
update those relationships because in the child welfare arena, who might be at nonprofit A this week is going to be in nonprofit C next week. And so I'm constantly uh, re energizing, reintroducing, re educating people about what we do here so that we never lose the key organizations in the community. So for some judges, I think there's a lot, a lot of desire to do it. There's, there just may be limited bandwidth because of the nature of their docket. Or unlike the benefit that I have here, is I've got a whole body of judges that allow me to focus on this. And they handle the other stuff. Mm -hmm. And many judges are doing all the criminal, all the civil, all the child welfare. Uh, so it, it can be very challenging. What role has, uh, well, what role have, have school districts played uh, in that effort in your experience? It, it's not as much as we'd like. Uh, I, it, it's just the school districts are as unique as the DNA in each one of your gentlemen's bodies. I mean, they are so different. They're managed so differently. They're run so differently um, that it's hard to get a handle on all of them. We at the Children's Commission, which is a, I don't know if you're familiar with the Children's Commission, that's a Supreme Court permanent commission related to children, youth, and families. I was the vice chair of that for eight years. Started in 2008. I've again, I've termed out, so now I'm the senior, senior judicial advisor for that body. It's uh, chaired by Justice Eva Guzman on the Texas Supreme Court, and they are built very much like my model court is built. You have a voting body, a commission, and then we have a massive collaboration around the state that come together once every four months. And through that body, we published, we brought together a multidisciplinary group in the area of education, and we published a blueprint on education for foster kids. Now we are on our second phase of that blueprint, now dealing with colleges and not with just, you know, zero to a high school diploma. Uh, and in that process, we were actually able to get somewhere with education at a statewide level. But at a local level, I mean, my foster kids are in Maynard ISD, Del Valley, Austin ISD, uh, they're in Hutto, they're in Leander, Summer in Eanes. When you, when you start talking about how many there are mm -hmm. and trying to corral all of them, very hard. We have a better relationship with Austin AIS, uh, with AISD. Um, Emma Ramona, uh, uh, oh gosh, Miss Ramona Butts is their governmental uh, relations liaison. Mm -hmm. And I have known Edna, uh, Edna Ramona Butts for many years. Uh, she worked with Senator Kurt Watson as his chief of staff for many years. And now she's in AISD. And so if I really have a problem with like a foster care liaison situation, you know, I've got her on email or speed dial and she's responsive and we get it done. 
Um, but it's just hard because there are so many different worlds of it in the world of education. Sure. Mm. Let's talk about the the family drug treatment court in Travis County. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've I've always thought that uh, stuff like like drug treatment is is a communal problem and should be solved communally, uh, which is why I was interested in in this project. How has it focused on stopping the cycle of drug abuse and addiction um, in Austin? And uh, you know, what have you seen through that through the process since? I believe you helped start it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's, I can't say Mm community-wide we would have as big of an impact as we would like, but I can tell you anecdotally, one person at a time, Mm -hmm. um, when you see one of those mothers, uh, most of the time it's mothers, we still, we uh, also have fathers in the family treatment drug court, that in graduation have either retained their children or gotten them back or well on the way in their road to recovery. Uh, They'll always be an addict, but they're on their way to a road to recovery. Uh, Their kids have been provided with evidence-based services that augment the issue of uh, them being a child of a parent that's an addict so that they're more equipped to keep themselves safe, to seek safety, and to see that same parent get their GED, their high school diploma. Some of them start college. Some of them have started businesses. Had one mom she bought her house she had lost six kids six kids to the system she had a heroin addiction and she's a taxpayer now she has her own home she's got a college degree it's going to be everything for her children now I mean it's it's a point where you've hit a cycle and now they get to see a sober mom Mm -hmm. Um, I'd love to say it was you know, we've probably touched 600 families since we've started through mm-hmm. the Family Treatment Drug Court. And not all of them have graduated successfully. I would say we're over 50% in the way of graduation. in in this type of drug court around the nation, if you get above 30, you're really being successful. Um... And it just shows how hard it is to be successful. But, you know, from my vantage point, it's, uh, I go in there every day to to save one at a time. Mm -hmm. And that's all the difference. How important is striking that balance between court supervision and direction while also preparing people to have their own agency to go back, you know. Yeah, I mean, you, you strike a, a good question, and there are numerous people that are better equipped at that than others. But the structure of, for example, our drug court 
has that built in. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, when you front, we front load everything. I mean, on day one, we are dealing with an emergency, probably the worst day in a person's life. Mm-hmm. We know that. And we need to, at that point, act like it's an emergency and bring the full force of the system to this family and deploy the help there. As a result, we, they got to see us a lot, and they do, and I'm sure they get sick of us. Uh, in the first phase, they're seeing us once every every week, unless they're actively in the inpatient drug treatment program. There we know they're safe and they're daily getting their needs met, and that's anywhere from 30 to 90 days. So it's it's a deep dive. Once we get past that and we get into phase two and phase three and phase four of drug court, we start backing out the touch of the system and letting you fly. It's just like raising kids. You know, when you've got little little babies, you can't let your eyes off of them. Um, but while they're in the safety net of the drug court, we recognize they're not going to be perfect and they're going to fall. And we're hoping we can build some trust of honesty is better. Honesty with us, honesty with yourself about the fall. And then let's pick you up and show you how to, you know, uh, wipe yourself off and get started again. And so, you know, we take three or four steps forward. We take one back. Next time, maybe we take five steps forward. Uh, But that's how the drug court model is structured. By the end, once you're in phase four, we're only seeing you about once every four weeks. And at that phase, uh, you're still, you still have your obligations, your court-ordered obligations. It's not just mother may I. These are court orders and there are consequences for not following through with court orders. And we impose consequences for not following through with court orders. But we believe in second chances too. Can you tell us more about how those consequences uh, work, or how, how the sanctions work in the in the drug treatment court? I mean, it, your worst well, the worst sanction I've got, and this is the heaviest hand we've got, is I terminate your rights to your children because you're not going to be safe. Um, and that I don't take lightly, and that takes a lot of time a lot of assessment, and the like. We are very successful in drug court. One of the big components is we typically have an extended family network in family treatment drug court that the child can be safe with. So even though we legally terminate a parent's rights, it's not like they may never see their parent again. But we know they're with safe extended relatives. Um, so that's that's the biggest consequence. And everything else I do in drug court is motivational at best. Um, we have used incarceration. Uh, we don't like to use incarceration on the basis of contempt. Uh, you really have to have done numerous things wrong to have that happen. Failure to show up at court is one of those things that can get you in that place. Because for our concern, if you're not in court, we're very worried about your personal safety. 
I mean, we've, we've lost people in this court and that, I mean, we take that incredibly seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, we're dealing with addicts. Um, other, uh, consequences are community service. Um, other consequences are maybe watching a particular developmentally appropriate video or, and writing a report on it and reporting out to the entire drug, uh, court team about what you've learned and how that's going to help you change behavior. You know, it, it's as creative as we can make it um, and as individualized as we can make it. Um, but you, when we run drug court, everybody's in there together. So there's a really collective sense of justice. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, one person got a particular consequence a month and a half ago for X act, and now another individual did X act today, they're expecting that same consequence that happened to them a month and a half ago. Now, in many respects, we try very hard to do that, but it's not that easy and it's not that cut and dried. We have different functioning of intellectual ability, um, different resources and different levels of recovery where we're expecting heightened levels of behavior and responsibility. So it, it's, a, it's a little tightrope for the drug court team to walk sometimes. You, talk, you got into it a little bit with the last question, but this idea um, or reality, I guess, of the fact that a lot of times civil issues can turn into criminal issues or criminal issues yeah. can turn into civil issues. Um, and in law school, you kind of are taught that there are two distinct things and we have different courts for each one. And, but there is a lot of overlap. So how in that experience has that affected your work as a civil judge? And is it something that you're cognizant of, um, that, you know, either someone is coming to you because of a criminal issue or someone or something that could happen in, in civil court could lead to criminal issues down the road? It, that's a very good question. Um, when you're dealing with families, you have to realize there's no wrong door. Um, we oftentimes at the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court judges speak out a scenario that can happen in 30 seconds or less in a person's home. And in that particular scenario, dad may wind up in jail in criminal court because of hitting mom or teenage boy 14 may wind up down at juvenile court for getting in the way of dad before he hits mom and he hits dad or little babies in the same room while that same scenario is playing out and nobody's being protective of little baby and little baby and teenage boy might be in CPS court next week. So the way we try to teach at the National Council is there is no wrong door and you need to be very skilled in recognizing, if not knowing the law in those other court systems 
recognizing those other court systems and having a way to cross-pollinate knowledge among judges in those systems so that you're not having orders that are at uh, loggerheads with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and we do that very well here. It, court systems around the country are doing it better and better with technology. Um, you know, I can key in a name in my computer now and I can pull up criminal documents and I can pull up civil documents. Mm -hmm. I can't do that with juvenile documents because of the statutes related to the protections associated with that. But in a separate program that I have access to because I preside in juvenile court too, I can pull up that. And, and also I have a very good relationship with my criminal court judges and my juvenile court judges, if I'm not the judge on that case, or have no hesitancy in deferring to each other, communicating with each other, um, making sure that we're not uh, putting this family in a legal conundrum, mm -hmm. that they can't comply with Judge Kasurik's order because I've got a different order that's pulling them a different way. Um, we have at the National Council a, one of our model court programs around the nation. I am not one of them, but there's a court system in Oregon that is. It's called a Project One Court, where literally if, you know, the Smith family number one is ever in front of me for anything, they will be for me, in front of me forever and always for everything, whether their child's in juvenile court, whether mom or dad's in criminal court, I'm the judge that presides in criminal. I preside on CPS. I preside on their juvenile case. Um, and so it's a way to break down silos. I like that approach. Um, a lot of, uh, there is a lot of discussion about the fact that we elect our judges here in, in Texas. Um, what are, some of the, you know, pros and cons that you've seen with that sort of process? Well, back in Gorebush, I was your dangling Chad here in Austin. I was mm -hmm. your only recount at the same time as the Bush-Gore recount was going on in wow. Florida. Mm, wow. Very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I was up against a um, George W. Bush appointee who had been on the bench for two years on the Republican side. And uh, the Bush-Gore thing was going on, and uh, I was definitely the underdog. Uh, mm -hmm. I would not be on the bench today if judges uh, weren't elected. Mm -hmm. um, I won after the recount by 929 votes out of 275,000 cast. Uh, this county went Republican that year because Bush was from here. Oh, yeah. um, incredibly, incredibly tight race. We had never had an elected Republican district court judge ever uh, in this county. Um, and that's how close my race was. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, as a trial judge, I am very supportive of elected positions for trial judges, especially in what I do. Um, 
what I do, my job is not to sit in that bench and call balls and strikes. My job is to get off the bench, meet my community, and pull together a collaborative that's doing good things for children and families. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do that if you've never been out in the community before. But as a candidate, I mean, you walk this entire county, and you meet this county, and you meet the people in this county, and you know what's important to the people in this county. Mm-hmm. And so when I send the bench as their judge, I feel like I've got a common sense of where they are as it relates to what we want for our community in the way of social norms, in the way of second chances, mm-hmm. in those ty- in healing courts and that kind of thing. If I were just appointed and I had never gone through that process and I'm not tasked every four years to let my community know that I'm still here for you and I'm accountable to you, um, I I think that would be problematic as a trial court judge. Now, if I were an appellate court judge, I might have a different point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, Am I smart enough to figure out what the best system is at that level? You know, if you don't think the appointment process is political, you're really joking yourself. Mm It's incredibly political, and I would have never made it through that political gauntlet. I was an underdog, unknown. Uh, It just would not have happened. But I worked hard. I met my community, um, and I I feel like they they turned out. What made you want to become a judge after being in practice for... 13 years? Uh, I I feel like even in law school, it's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I wanted in law school was I knew I wanted to be in the court as much as I possibly could. And I did not go the route of uh, a district attorney's office or county attorney's office to begin with. I was lured by the big dollars of private practice and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that kind of thing. And uh, and enjoyed it and learned a whole lot, but you don't get to get in the courtroom as much as mm. you'd like. Um, so I practiced with a big firm. I had had uh, I was a legal secretary during the day while I was in paralegal school at night. I was a paralegal in the day while I was a law student at night. So by doing all that, I had a lot of practical experience. I did a lot of work in bankruptcy court as a paralegal. I was in court all the time mm-hmm. uh, as a paralegal. You, you could do that there without a law license in creditors' meetings and those types of things. Um, so I just had a hunger for being in the court. Um, and so my first few years, even though it was a big firm, I got a, I had the opportunity of a lot of autonomy, learned a lot of areas of law I didn't know, a lot of savings and loan law, a lot of 
um, a litigation as it rela- relates to a board of directors and them mm-hmm. defrauding banks and that kind of thing. So I learned a lot. And I was able to leverage that learning into my insurance defense work. And in the insurance defense, I had this massive docket. I was like uh, thir- three years out at this massive docket of products liability, and I was flying all over the country um, representing this small manufacturer um, and getting to do a lot of trial work. Uh, so again, I loved it, um, but it wasn't. It still wasn't enough. I mean, I wanted to be in the court all the time, and um, I think my skills are a lot better suited than... I like I like being able to do what I think is the right thing, as opposed to advocating the position of one side or the other. Because I've just been given these facts, and I'm trying to do the best I can with the facts that I've been given uh, under the law. So I really do enjoy just getting to do the right thing. So I think it suits my personality better, and it accomplishes my goal. I'm in court all the time. Picking up off of uh, doing the right thing. Yeah. We, we wanted to know what your definition of justice is. Oh, my. Wow. My definition of justice. And if you want to give us an answer in, in, the, in the context of, of the family, that would mm-hmm. Well, sense I oftentimes think, again, I think every fact scenario that comes in front of a judge is as unique as every snowflake. There's never another case, fact, circumstance like the one that just came in front of you. And so you can't treat any one family or one situation in a rote fashion. You've never seen this situation before. Or a a jury trial, for that matter. Or one car wreck is not like another car wreck. Um, One employment dispute is not like another. And I think to do justice, I have to test myself every day that this case for this family is one of the most important things that will ever happen in their lives. And to do justice, I can't be complacent. I can't... um, develop a cookie-cutter answer. I have to develop the right answer for this family at this moment in time. And um, if, if I do that, I know that I've done justice. Also, if I provide due process, if I give the family or the litigant their full day in court, their just day in court, being attentive, being there, being present, engaging, I will reach justice for the family. Uh, sometimes in, in, in my court, it's insisting that I've got very well-trained lawyers 
that knowing that when I appoint a lawyer for this indigent mom or this indigent dad, that lawyer has had access to good quality training. I run brown bag trainings in my court every month to give my lawyers free education every month. I expect a lot of them, and they give a lot back. I don't know. That's a long way of saying justice, talking about justice, but um, it, it's a hard thing to quantify because um, justice is not something you can define in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. So you analogize capital punishment and the termination of rights uh, of the parent, and I wanted to uh, to go back to that briefly and and. And, and see see what because now now that I've heard you draw that analogy it, it makes sense to me but I wanted to know more about uh, why why you come to that conclusion well as a parent of three of the most awesome kids on the planet and I'm sure you gentlemen your parents probably said the same thing about you um, I I cherish that parental role um, as one of my highest jobs on the planet. I mean, that's above being a judge. That's 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 it. That's the bee's knees. Um, and the thought of a parent having to go through a termination of parental rights trial and have their legal rights to their child forever and for always severed. I can't, I can't even comprehend that is anything other than equating to death to me. Um, and there are, there are some amazing parents that go through that courtroom that realize they are ill-equipped to keep their children safe and to meet their children's even basic, barest needs. And some of those parents are so courageous and so selfless to give up their rights. And especially those that show up in court when I'm terminating and they've signed that be all and forever document and acknowledge to me judge I just they are better off in the care of somebody else than me now that is one of the most selfless acts I've ever seen in my life it's courageous beyond belief Um, but today we had across the hall one of the ladies that I've been dealing with for years. Her rights terminated to now her third child. And I can't tell you what the wailing was like in the hallway. And it went on for 10 minutes. Wailing, screaming, crying. It's absolute pain. If you can't see that you can't do this, um, and some of the parents lack the insight, they just 
Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's their drug addiction. Maybe it's their intellectual functioning. They just can't see it. And so they have to go through the painful process of witness after witness after witness. Talking about your worst day ever. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've done some bad things in my life. And the last thing I want is to have to sit there in open court with 12 members of this community hearing about the worst thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. It's it's painful. Mm 